If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy. We've been in this series for a little while now. This is week six of the series that we're calling In This House, because 1 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, and he's walking him through, here's how the church is meant to function. Here are the house rules of how the church of Jesus Christ works. And each week, we've gone over a different house rule, and we'll get to see another one today that will be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So if you have a Bible, you can look down and read along. And as you can see, if you don't have a Bible, we have the verses up here on the screen for you to read along there also. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we get to gather as your people. We just confess right now, we, whether we recognize it or not, or not, we desperately need you. And so we need a word from you. We need you to bring healing and mercy and grace and help. And I pray that during this time, as we read and talk about your scriptures, that you give us that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, we start to learn at a pretty young age a lesson that I think is especially true in the U.S., but really is, is true of every culture. And what we learn is that typically, if we want to be successful, that's only going to happen at the expense of other people not being successful. So early on, we start into school, and our attitude towards school is not just that we want to get good grades, but our attitude is also that there are some people in the class that we really don't want to get good grades, in fact, there are some people in particular that we target and we say, if they get a good grade, it's going to ruin the curve. It's going to mess things up. I won't have as strong a place in the class. So we're not just trying to be successful in school. We're actively rooting for other people to not be successful because our success comes only when they fail. And then we move on and we get involved in activities and you go out for the school play and you're really excited for a big part that you can have in it. But you know, you're only going to get that part if the other people auditioning don't do as well as you. So you're not only trying really hard to do your audition well, but then when the other kids are auditioning, you're sort of secretly praying for them to stumble over their words so that their failure can mean your success. And the same thing happens with the sports teams as you're trying for that starting spot, but that's only going to happen if somebody else doesn't do as well as you. And then it goes into the work world and we have jobs and we're trying to advance and we're trying to get promotions. And as we're trying to do that, we're sort of hoping that other people's deals and projects don't go through as well, because if they do go through, they might become a threat to our advancement and our success. And then you get into politics. And with politicians, it's not simply that the Republicans want to win. The Republicans don't just want to win. What do the Republicans want? They want the Democrats to lose. And the Democrats don't just want to win. The Democrats want the Republicans to use, they lose. There's this active rooting. There's this active sense of the way to be successful is if the people who are a threat to me are unsuccessful. 
That is the way of the world. That is the air that we breathe in 2019 in the United States. And the Apostle Paul is about to say, not so in this house. There's a different way that we function among the people of God. There's a different house rule that guides us. In fact, Jesus said something really compelling in in one of the last statements that he made to his disciples before his crucifixion. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. Here's going to be the giveaway that they're going to know that you're with me. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In this house, very simply, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, we build others up. In this house, I don't look at you as somehow a threat to my success. You don't look at the people around you as somehow in the way of you moving forward. Your spiritual growth is in no way a threat to anybody else's spiritual growth. In this house, instead of seeing each other as threats to our advancement, we see other people as men and women who are precious to God and are meant to be built up. In this house, all people will know that we're with Jesus if we love one another. And where the Apostle Paul is with this right now, in some ways, what he's going to talk about and what we're going to walk through this morning, it's going to apply and it's going to have application wherever you are, whatever you're doing. But it has special application for how we behave ourselves when the church is gathered at times like this morning, when we're coming together specifically for the purpose of gathering for worship, because that's what Paul is talking to Timothy about. He's talking about the way that the church functions when we're together. And so he's going to be talking about some some specific ways that we build each other up when we're together. And so if we're going to do what Jesus said, if we're going to display the gospel through our love for one another, what the Apostle, Apostle Paul is going to say is that we display the gospel when we sacrifice anything that distracts. If I want you built up, and if you want me built up, That means that we are willing to lay aside and sacrifice anything that would distract from all eyes being on Jesus. And so in these three verses, Paul's going to do something real simple. He's going to say, I have a word to the men and I have a word to the women. Verse eight is his word to the men. Verses nine to 10 is his word to the women. And he's going to give each of us a specific battle that we fight and a specific calling for how we contribute to helping all eyes beyond Jesus. And so verse eight, he starts, he starts with the men and here's his message to the men. He says, men, I want you to fight the true enemy. And we're going to see in a moment as we look at verse eight, but part of why I think the apostle Paul does this is because he knows there's a specific battle going on inside most of us as men. We have this angst. We have this sense that we're supposed to be battling. We're supposed to be struggling. We're supposed to be trying to win something. There's a fight to be had. And we just sort of instinctively know that that's out there. That's supposed to be a part of my existence. And what Paul is going to say is, yes, men, there is a battle. Yes, men, fight that battle. But fight the true enemy. Don't fight who the enemy is going to try to trick you into fighting. So here's how he starts. Verse 8, he says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray. So the therefore makes us look back. And if you were here last week, you would have seen that verses one through seven is about the apostle Paul calling the church as a whole to pray when we're gathered together. He says, I want prayers lifted up and I want prayers lifted up for everyone. 
I want to lift it up for all kinds of people, including kings and people in authority, because God's desire is that all people get saved. So we come together as a church family and we pray, and not just for the people that we like, and not just for the people who look like us or we feel like share our same interests. We pray for everyone because the gospel is for everyone. So he's building off that. He's saying, all right, now in light of all that, I have a specific word to the men. Therefore, I want the men everywhere. Not just the men in Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring, but the men in Corinth and the men in Colossae and the men in Galatia and the men in Upland and the men in Rancho Cucamonga, the men all over, any place that people are gathered together for the purpose of worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want the men everywhere to pray. Now, sort of a quick, obvious question comes up right away. Doesn't he want the women to pray too? Like, why is he singling out the men here? What is special about this? And we know from other passages, Paul clearly does want the women to pray also. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is talking about the way that the church functions when they're gathered together, he says women are praying and prophesying in these church meetings. So when he's talking about this, he's not saying, now when you're gathered together, the men will pray and the women won't. He's simply saying, all right, there's something going on. And he's going to address something specific that's going on with the men and going on with the women. And he says, all right, here's what I want the men to hear. Here's what I want the men to hear. Above all, when you come together as a church family, I want your focus to be that you've come together to pray. And we get more insight in where he goes next. He says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. And this is a metaphorical reference to the idea that the Jews, before they would go in and interact with the sacred elements of worship, they would ritually wash their hands to signal the idea, we're dealing with God here. We want to recognize that we should deal with ourselves before we flippantly deal with God. So Paul now is saying, all right, metaphorically speaking, when you come together, I don't just want you to lift up your hands in prayer which would have been the normal posture for the, for the first century Jew to pray like this. But he says, I want them to be holy hands. He's signaling the idea, I want you to deal with yourself and deal with your own baggage before you've come in to pray. And here's why. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without what? Anger or disputing. Now we get to the heart of the matter. It says, men, you're in the midst of a battle and you're going to be tempted even when you're gathered as a church family to fight each other. Don't fight each other. Fight the true enemy. Fight the good fight. Fight for unity. Don't fight each other. And we might read this and say, is this really going on? Like really at Ephesus, they're coming together for church meetings and in these church meetings, there's kind of some scuffles and some backbiting and some passive aggressive statements being made. Um, and, and I don't mean to be cynical, but some of you have been at church for more than like three months and so it doesn't sound that unrealistic to you that this kind of thing would happen. You're like, no, I buy it. I buy the idea that there's all kinds of things that happen. Through the Holy Spirit, God is making us new. But we also know that we all have a lot of baggage. And so sometimes, even in church gatherings, we can get really tweaked by each other, get really upset, and, and sometimes over really petty things. 
Sometimes over the idea that just you're, you're with your life group and everybody's kind of sharing their comments on a passage of scripture and you share something that you think is especially insightful and maybe even close to your heart and somebody else is just kind of dismissive or makes a joke of it and the rest of the night, all you can think of is how you were slighted. It's like, I can't believe they did that to me. I thought about that. Maybe you're even like, I prayed about that. I thought that was gonna be helpful to other people and they just treated it like garbage. They treated it like trash. They just brushed me off. Maybe you're in a certain place at the church and you think that you should be the Bible study leader or the Bible study teacher and they keep asking other people that you frankly think are not up to your level of quality. And every time you look at that person, you're like, why do they keep choosing them? They're nothing special. Why don't they give me this opportunity? Maybe you're walking into the church family, the church gathering, and you're upset with your spouse. It could happen. This has been known to happen. People talk about the attacks of Satan that happen like in the 15 minutes that you're trying to get everything ready and suddenly every kid has a meltdown and you get into a fight and somebody brings something up. And this is one of the things. This is one of the things that could happen. Not only could you be in a gathering where where say it's one of the Sundays where we say, all right, everybody's going to stand up and get into groups and we're going to spend some time in prayer. Not only could it happen that you're in that setting and while you're praying sort of out of the corner of your eye, you're looking at that person that you're mad at and you're like, "Mm," just kind of upset about it. Not only could that happen, but it's been known to happen that sometimes Christians use the occasion of prayer to send messages to each other. (laughs) gather in groups and pray about what's on your heart. I know what's on my heart. God, will you please help my wife to be nicer to me than she's currently being? I just want to pray for her heart, that you soften her heart. And again, it sounds silly, but we can get really upset with each other in these settings. And and I don't, it's not that I think that it doesn't happen with women also, why he's focusing in on the men here. Um, I think part of the reason he's focusing in on men is that women tend to be a bit more socially savvy in how they subtly deal with their conflicts. Whereas men, we can be a lot less socially savvy about that. So we're just like, I'm mad and I feel slighted. and, And the main thing that I need to do is I need to vindicate my status and my reputation. And so you know what? We're gathered together and he's there and he said that to me and he shouldn't have said that to me. And so I'm gonna deal with it now. We're gonna deal with it. So not only do I feel better about myself, but all these other people know that nobody treats me that way. Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. I want you to come together and I want you to recognize that the reason that you're gathered together is not because of you. This is not an opportunity for you to be at center stage. This is an opportunity for all eyes to be on Jesus. So when you're gathered together, I want you to look, I want you to look around at your brothers and sisters and I want you to gather together in prayer instead of anger or disputing. Some of you know the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus sort of talked about this thing, talked about Jewish worship and all right, if you're gathered at the altar and you're about to give your sacrifice to God and suddenly it occurs to you that there's a brother or sister that has a problem with you, you leave that gift there and you go and you find a way to be reconciled. You find a way to make things right with that brother or sister because worship of God is not separate from how we're treating one another. Just think of it this way. I I have three sons, um, and I love them all, and and they all love each other. But even when brothers love each other, there's still things that go on. And so uh, let's just say, let's say that uh, one of my sons is just mistreating his brother all day. 
just being mean, bullying, kind of pushing them around, throwing out insults, just really the whole day being cruel. And then that same son comes up to me and says, you know what, dad, dad, you're the best. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful that you're in my life. I'm so thankful for all the hard work that you do for us. You know what, dad, I would do anything for you. What's the first thing that I'm going to tell him (laughs) I want him to do? Yeah, I'm going to say, I want you to stop mistreating my son who I love. I want you to be better to your brother. I want you to find a way to get along. I love you both desperately. And so if really, if you would do anything for me, that's the biggest thing on my heart that I want you to do. God is a father to all his children. And if we're gathered together on a Sunday morning and we're singing songs and we're really in the moment and we really do have that sense of, God, I really would, I really would do anything from you. Anything that you ask, I would do for you. I'm lifting up holy hands and I'm praying and I'm singing and God, you're the greatest. You've shown me mercy. You've shown me grace. You've saved me. You've forgiven me. God, I'll do anything for you. And then out of the corner of your eye, you're like, yeah, but after church, I'm going to talk to that guy and we're going to deal with some stuff. God's message to you is, I want you to get along with my son. I want you to be reconciled with you. So I, I want you to have the humility to recognize it's not all about you. And how tragic if an opportunity when the church of Jesus is gathered to be completely focused on Jesus, how tragic if that's hijacked because you can't use the self-control to recognize it's not all about you. God calls us as men. And, and again, all of us. But those of us who are men in the room, this is a special message to us to say when the church is gathered together, don't hijack that time to have anger or disputing. Don't hijack that time to make it about your vindication or your status. Help keep all eyes on Jesus. As you think about this, remember, this is not just a command. This is a reality that we live in. Back on Go Team Sunday, we walked through the passage in um, in 2 Corinthians 5 where we talked about the gospel we've been given, the ministry of reconciliation. Um, And I bring it up because it was just back in January, so I know it's fresh on all of your minds that we talked about this. And that's a joke in case you're like, I don't really remember. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to the gospel of Jesus as the message of reconciliation. And he does that because when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the price that reconciled us to God. But that's not it. He also paid the price to reconcile you to your brothers and sisters, to bridge the gap between Jew and Gentile, between old and young, between man and woman, between black and white, all of those are bridged through Jesus. And so I don't normally do this, but I just want you to pause. Look to your left and look to your right. Look at the people around you in this room. Now, now here's what I want to say. We live in a very consumeristic age, and so it's easy to look around and see the other people in the room right now sort of in the same way that you'd see fellow shoppers at Ikea. You're just like, we all kind of like the same thing. We like the way that they do worship here. We like the messages. We like the kids' program. So hey, all of us just sort of shop at the same church. You are much more than fellow shoppers with one another. You are brothers and sisters bonded by the seal of the Holy Spirit. You are redeemed from death and hell because of what Jesus has done for you. You will spend eternal life 
worshiping and glorifying God forever with the other people who have been redeemed. When you practice reconciliation with one another, you are living in a reality that Jesus is one day going to fully usher in. So he says to the men, fight the real enemy instead of getting into fetty fights. Petty fights with one another. That's his word to the men. He has a word to the women, though, in verses 9 and 10. So he says to the men, all right, I I want you to fight, but fight in the right way. I want you to fight the true enemy. He's going to say to the women, I want you to display true beauty. So he goes in a different direction with this. He's going to say, all right, a lot of your life is going to be focused around probably kind of thinking about things related to beauty. And so there is a beauty that's amazing and that you bring to the world and to the family of God. And I want you to focus on the better beauty, the more transformative and long-lasting beauty than the one that you'll be tempted to focus on. So he says, starting in verse 9, I also want, and so he says, likewise, all right, the men do this, women, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. So he's going to talk mainly about appearance. He's going to say, all right, here's what I want you to do. And when he talks about dressing, the the Greek word there, it's kind of interesting because it has not only to do with the clothes that you put on, but it has to do also with your overall posture towards things. So it's sort of like it's attire and it's attitude. So he says, all right, here's here's what I want you to put on. Here's what I want you to adorn. Here's what I want you to display. I want the display to be modestly with decency and propriety. And so just to explain what these words mean, modestly here, the Greek word has to do with the idea of being respectable. And so in chapter three, which we'll be in in a couple weeks, um, Paul talks about the whole idea of an overseer needs to be respectable. It's the same Greek word here. He's saying, all right, I want you to dress in a way that's respectable. And then when he talks about decency and propriety, and propriety is not a word we use a lot. It it has to do with being proper. He's talking about two elements of this. He's saying, all right, in the way that you dress, There's a couple ways that this could go wrong. And the first way that it could go wrong is that you could dress in a way that would be sexually provocative and therefore would draw undue attention to yourself because you're dressing in a way that's sexually provocative. Now he says kind of the second element of this is not necessarily that you're dressing in a way that's provocative in that way, but that you're dressing in a way that's so showy that eyes are drawn to you because I know how much that dress cost. I know how much that purse was. I I know how long it must have taken for that hairstyle to be done. So part of it is saying, I want you to dress in a way that's not distracting people because you're dressing in a way that's sexually provocative. And also I want you not to dress in a way that's distracting people because it's just so elaborate and showy that it's hard for people not to be distracted. And he explains it further in verse 9 when he says, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And so here, even inherent in this, he sort of is assuming this is going to be especially difficult if you're in a position where you have a lot of options to buy expensive stuff. If you do, you're going to have more fashion options. And he says, all right, here's what I want to happen. When you're getting ready for, for, for anything, But in particular, when you're getting ready for a gathering with the people of God, a gathering when you're coming together for all eyes to be on Jesus, don't dress in a way that's going to direct all eyes towards you, either because you're being provocative or because you're being showy. I'm just going to take a a moment to say, I recognize I'm on very thin ice right now. (laughs) If some of you are like, does he know? Yes, I know. I know this is a very touchy subject, um, but, but first of all, it's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. 
Um, and also, th- this is a word, and, and this is part of the, the thing that goes on. In, in the same way that when he talks to men, he's not talking to men and saying, men, you have this instinct that you're sort of supposed to be warriors and you're supposed to fight for something important. Just leave that behind. He's not saying that to men. He's saying, you're right. You are meant to fight for something. Fight against your pride and fight for self-control instead of fighting for your own status. And in the same way with women, he's not saying, oh, you have this desire to be attractive and to be beautiful. Just leave that behind. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, of course, you would want to bring beauty into the situation. That's part of what God created. I mean, if you go all the way back to Genesis 2 and you see Adam's reaction to Eve, clearly the woman is bringing beauty into the world. But look at what he says in verse 10. He says, I don't want your focus to be on all these elaborate hairstyles and gold and pearls. He says, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I was texting with my brother probably about six months ago, and he has four children. He has two boys and two girls. I just, I just have three boys, so I don't know the dynamics of having a daughter. And I was asking him with each of his kids if he had specific prayer requests, things that he's been praying for them and things that I can pray for them. Um, and, and with his oldest daughter, and I loved how he said this, he said, pray that she would treasure godly virtue over physical beauty. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, if I had a daughter, that sounds like the best prayer ever. I mean, that, that's just, that's so amazing. And she's just, she's this adorable little girl. She is going to have a battle in this area. It is not going to be difficult for her to get a lot of attention because of her physical beauty. But his prayer is that, not that she wouldn't be beautiful, but that she would treasure godly virtue over that. Paul's idea here is not saying, ah, if you're beautiful, you need to just sort of hide that under a bushel. You need to find a way that people don't notice. He simply is saying, value good works. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3 in a very similar passage. He talks about the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And he's not saying that because he's saying women shouldn't talk. He's saying that because he's talking to women whose lives are pretty difficult. And they could feel like the world is just unsettled and chaotic around them. And they have a sense of quietness and gentleness because they know that God is their rock. And so the beauty that they're bringing into the church family is not simply that they look nice, but the beauty that they're bringing into the church family is the beauty of somebody whose life seems very chaotic from the outside, but they have the stability and the gentleness and the calmness because of what God is doing in their lives. And so even in talking about this, I don't have any desire to go deep into the weeds with getting specific, with modesty things. Um, Some of you have been in conversations before, like you you grew up in youth group, or some of you right now are in youth group, and you're like, oh, the modesty talk. Or you sort of, at one point, you got the modesty talk, some of you ladies, and you're like, I remember the modesty talk, and here's how the modesty talk went. It went like this. Um, Men are pigs. They can't control themselves. They're sex crazed. And so it's your job to make sure that you don't in any way endanger their purity. And so you're like, oh, give me a giant curtain and I'll just kind of hide in that. So a couple of things I want to say. The first is this. There can be a tendency for, for, and I think it's a legitimate complaint. There could be a tendency for some of you ladies to say, so because you guys can't control yourselves, I've got to dress differently. And the first response is this. Our deal, our quest, those of us who are men, our quest for purity is not your responsibility, it's our responsibility. And so men, it's not their responsibility, it's our responsibility. It is not your job as women to make sure that there's no possibility that we could be led astray by, by gawking or looking too long or anything like that. It's our job. At the same time, if you want all eyes to be on Jesus, 
you got to think about these things. There's just no way around it. There's no way around the idea that you would want to come, especially, again, if you're gathering for a church gathering and to say, all right, what I'm about to wear, is this likely to make it difficult for the other people there to have their complete focus on Jesus? And if it is going to make it difficult, why not wear something different? Why not dress in a way that all eyes can be on Jesus and people aren't distracted by that? That's similar to what Paul is saying to the men. He's saying, all right, you may have a conflict and you may even have a legitimate conflict, but don't you want all eyes to be on Jesus? Don't you want him to have the entire focus of all things? If you do, deal with your conflict in a way that doesn't distract. And if you do want all eyes to be on on Jesus, dress in a way that's not going to end up distracting from that. And there are wisdom decisions to be made. But the biggest thing that he's getting at is this is meant to be our heart towards one another. That when we're gathered together, we're thinking not only of what's going to be my worship experience this morning, but we're thinking of how can I conduct myself in a way that all of the people around me can have their eyes on Jesus. You know, one of the things that I, I get to do from time to time that I love is I get to officiate weddings. It's one of my favorite things. And uh, there's a very simple thing to remember if you're officiating a wedding, if you're in the wedding party, or if you're attending a wedding. This is very, very important. This is rule number one for weddings. It is all about the bride. (laughs) This is just wisdom. It's not even all about the bride and groom, because when you show up, the groom's just kind of out there talking to people. There's no big mystery. Everybody's chatting him up, and the bride is hidden away, and nobody knows quite what's going on. And when the music starts, is she going to come out? What's going to happen? It's all about the bride. So because it's all about the bride, anybody attending would be wise to make sure that they don't upstage the bride. Can you imagine if all the bridesmaids said, we're getting a raw deal with these dresses? Nobody's looking at us, so you know what? We're going to make sure they are. We're going to get new bouquets, and we're going to get some new... I know nothing about fashion. Um, We're going to do something that would draw more attention. We're going to make sure that when it's time for the ceremony, people are looking at us. If anybody had that spirit, what you would say to them is, don't upstage the bride. And if the, the reception was about to happen afterwards and there was a couple family members, and this happens. When people are doing the seating chart, they're like, oh, don't put him with him. <laughs> now, these are the uncles that got into a fight a long time ago. How tragic if somebody used the wedding reception to say, now it's time to air my grievances at all of the people who have wronged me. If anybody was thinking about doing that, you would say to them, don't upstage the bride. And the message to all of us is, Don't upstage the bridegroom. Don't upstage Jesus. Deal with your conflict some other time or just let it go. For heaven's sake, God has let a lot of things go with you. Maybe you can just let it go. And when you're coming together, at least give thought to saying, am I dressing in a way that's going to make it difficult for other people? Don't upstage the bridegroom because you know what happens when all eyes are on Jesus? Lives are changed. People are transformed when all eyes are on Jesus. And we all come into this time with problems. And some of you are coming into this time and the problems have to do just with things in your life that are out of control and and you're just really going through trials and you're sad and you're dealing with a lot of difficulty and you're coming together in this time. And you know what needs to happen? You know what would bring you hope in your trials? It's not a good word of advice. 
What's going to give you hope in your trials is if you absolutely lose track of yourself looking at Jesus. It's if you remember that the man who walked on water may be able to handle what you're going through. We get healing and we get hope if our eyes are on Jesus. And some of you come in this morning and you're feeling really rotten because you fell back into a bad habit or you sinned this week in a way that just really has you down and you're frustrated about it and you're trying to figure out how to deal with these feelings of guilt and shame and, and you could look at it and say, well, what, what I really need to do is I need to find a way to offset this by just focusing my mind on all of the good things that I've done because I did some bad things, but I've done lots of good things. Or maybe I need to get past this by looking at all the other people and saying, ah, they're all more messed up than me. So, so maybe I can feel a little bit better about this just by looking at other people and seeing how they mess up also. No, you know how you get past those feelings of guilt and shame? By having your eyes completely fixed on Jesus and remembering that he's the shepherd who left behind the 99 to come and track you down because of how desperately he loves you. If you just want a glimpse of the life transformation that happens when Jesus is on center stage, think of the last person that Jesus saved before he died. There was a thief on a cross next to him. Talk about a captive audience. Talk about somebody who didn't have any option other than to think about Jesus the whole time. And if you read the Gospels closely, it seems that at the beginning of their time together on the, on the crosses, this man was mocking Jesus and throwing insults at him. But by the end of the time, he was so compelled by Jesus that his dying words were, when you get into your kingdom, will you please remember me? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus is on center stage, souls are saved. We're playing with real bullets. These are high stakes here. When we come together, especially as the church family, we want all eyes on Jesus and none of us want to do anything that's going to distract from that. And this is something we consider even as we get ready to, to have the response time that I talked about earlier which we're going to do in just a moment. And so even if you're going to be one of the people who's going to be up, ready to receive people, you can come to one of the sides now because I just want all of you who are sitting there to say, yeah, there's going to be people ready to receive you. And I know this is something that we as a church family, it's, it's newer to us. We're not as used to doing this. Um, so there could be a lot of thoughts that go through your mind. You could think, all right, he just talked about not making it all about me. If I go up there, all eyes are on me. Like that's just going to happen. But here's what I want to say. If you have the courage to say, I need Jesus so desperately that I'm going to go up and get somebody to pray with me, here's what other people are most likely going to be thinking. They're going to be thinking that person believes that Jesus is powerful enough to deal with their problems. That person's not going to be paying that much attention to you. They're going to be paying more attention to Jesus. And let me just give you some options. If, if you're thinking about, well, what, what would I even do if I were to come up during this response time? Well, well I'll give you one right away. You may today have heard about the message of reconciliation and said, I need to be reconciled to God. I've never become a Christian. I've never given my life to Jesus. I need to be reconciled to God. Maybe today is your day to come forward and experience the grace and the new life and the forgiveness that Jesus brings through putting your faith in him. And there's no better way to do that than to come and pray with a brother or sister who will lead you through that. Maybe some of you listen to the message and you're like, yeah, I do have a conflict and I haven't been dealing with it well and I've had a lot of resentment and, and I've had a grudge. Maybe today is the day that you come forward and deal with that and confess that and pray for that. Or maybe there's things not even related at all to the message tonight, today. You're just saying, I'm dealing with a trial. I'm dealing with a sin. I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with an upcoming decision. 
feel free to come up and pray with a brother and sister. This, it, it was amazing last service what we got to experience when we did this together. We want to respond to God in our hearts. Use this as a time to respond to him in your hearts. And even if you don't come forward, use this as a time where you and your heart are responding to God and praying for those who are at a point where they're desperate enough to seek help from a brother or sister. Use this as a time to ask God to search your heart for what he's calling you to do. Let me pray for us before we get ready to sing. Father, thank you for the grace that that you give and thank you that we are all better off if all eyes are on Jesus. We pray that during this time you bring healing, you bring help, you bring hope, and you bring forgiveness. We pray that you bring us all responsive hearts to you, and we pray that as we get all the help, that you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.